Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash. Making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last. Because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. on the Ritz indeed. Um, this is Gumby here, and I'm all by myself, well, except for Sherlock, and I don't think he's going to add much to this conversation. Um, this is episode 83, y'all. Now, why am I by myself? Well, it's been a hell of a couple of weeks. Um, let's, let's see, where do I start? Well, there's this herbalist around here or was an herbalist around here, Wild Will Andres. And uh, I studied under him for years, as well as many other people. He, he has taught so many people in this area. Um, and I actually had an interview set up with him for our podcast. You know, he was like, oh, good to hear from you. I'll be glad to do an interview. Um, you want to make an appointment for next week? You know, when I sent him the message. And I said, well, the way I usually like to do it is uh, whoever I'm going to interview, like, you give me three questions that you want to be asked so I can make sure you have an opportunity to talk about things that you want to talk about. And uh, Will was kind of busy, and he was like, "Uh, you know, didn't really get back to me. And, um, you know, I didn't hear back from him for weeks and weeks. And uh, I'm used to that. People are flaky as shit. I don't know if you guys have noticed, but, like, I've had so many people that are like, all right, I want to do an interview, and then... That's it. I mean, they just, you know, don't follow up. Don't. Some of them don't even send me a message or anything. So I just figured Will flaked out on me. That's fine. I'll try to catch up with him some other time. Well, I found out pretty recently that that trip he had to go on, that I could have got that interview before he went on that trip. His truck broke down in the mountains as he's uh, wildcrafting. I don't know what he was after, um, but he's taking a walk you know, from his broke down truck and gets hit by another truck. And he was in the hospital for about a month from the, uh, the injuries from that and died. So I'm like, wow, not only is this teacher that I, uh, really respected and a friend, you know, Will, Will was such an outlaw. I love the guy. He, uh, he really embraced things like trespassing, you know, every class I took with him, I used to every, I think it was Tuesday, he had this explorer group and me and a few other people would meet up with him and he'd always have some different patch of land and like, all right, kiddos, we're going to go and, and trespass on this land. And it was just so fun. You know, he was such a, such a rebel. Um, so not only am I dealing with him being gone suddenly, but that I was so close to having that last interview damn, like one of the true elders of our community. And I was taking this kind of tact of like, "Eh, take your time, you know, think of your questions. 
God, if I would have known, I would have just rushed in and like, let's get this interview done. Um, makes me think, you know, we just did Hobo Zen recently, uh, an episode talking about the Buddha and uh, Zen Buddhism. And it makes me think of this thing that the Buddha said. And he said, uh, your problem is you think you have time. And indeed, that was my problem then. I thought, I just took it for granted. Like, we'll be around in a few weeks. So, there's that. And that was kind of in the background. So we're sitting, Teresa and I are sitting here at this park. Actually, the same exact parking spot I'm in right now, sitting in my van. Um, It's a rainy, dreary day. And winter just seems so damn long. And life seems so short. And I'm like, what the hell am I doing with my life? You know, it it's it just feels so flat. Winter feels so long. The days still feel so short. It won't stop fucking raining. It's so depressing. We're just existing. Um, none of this is making me want to go get a job again or move into a house or any of that stuff. But it is making me question what I'm doing in this van. So I just kind of spontaneously say, Teresa, I'm going to Florida. I would uh, welcome you to come with me, but it's your choice, you know, if you want to do something else, but I'm going to Florida. I feel like I need to do that. And Teresa, you know, took a little bit of time, wrapped her mind around it, but decided, yeah, let's do it. Let's go to Florida. So we're heading down to Florida a couple days later. It's the only state I haven't been to. Never been to Florida. I've been to Alaska. I've been to Hawaii. Haven't really been outside of the United States much at all, except for a brief little stint crossing the border into Canada. Um... So Florida, the final frontier for me. Alligators, palm trees, uh, ecosystems I haven't seen. And we get all the way down to Georgia, taking our time. And we're almost there. We're almost there to Florida. We pull into a rest stop for the night, kind of doing our little routine, filling up our water bottles, you know, using the bathroom. Teresa gets online. We've got a little hot spot from the library. And uh, she says, oh, my God, my dad's dead. Wow. It was so sudden. Once again, I mean, there's so many people that I'm realizing have died this year. And strangely for me, for the people in my circle that are dying, none of them from COVID. But still, still, so much death. And her father had an accident while he was hiking. Um, in which he he fell into a gorge, and actually a rock fell on top of him. And uh, he passed, it would seem, really quickly. And uh, I think I'm okay sharing this, because Teresa already shared this publicly on on social media. Um, I won't go into more details than that, because it's really Teresa's to share if she she wishes. But it was really jarring. I was lucky enough to have met Mike uh, many times, to have spent some time with him, and he was such a sweet, gentle guy. so we turned the van around, rushed all the way back to uh, Raleigh so she could meet up with her brother and they could fly out to Utah and be with her her mom, who's now all by herself, and, you know, deal with all the, the logistics, the emotional, you know, just all the stuff that's involved in that. Um, so there's not much more I can say from Teresa's end, because like I said, that's for her to share about this. But from my end, you know, I'm, uh, I miss the guy, you know, I... I it was just so jarring and so sudden. And so this plan to go to Florida, you know, still the only state I haven't been to. Now I'm on my own. Um, and it is so jarring 
to suddenly, like after years of every waking moment, every waking moment, we don't have a, even have another room to go to. Teresa and I share this van. So I wake up, there's Teresa. Um, basically, the only time I'm not with Teresa, I mean, we bathe together. You know, if there's a creek and we're washing up, we're there together. Uh, the only time I'm by myself is if I go to take a shit. <laughs> and as Teresa said one day, you know, like she feels like uh, Chuck Nolan and Castaway whenever I go to take a shit when that soccer ball Wilson is floating away in the ocean and he's saying, Wilson, no, come back, Wilson. <laughs> so, yeah, that's the kind of codependent relationship we've had for the last few years. And uh, so to, to suddenly be by myself is like, wow, it's very... Uh, spacious. <clears throat> so I'm trying to uh, make lemonade out of this time. I've reinstated a samadhi practice, uh, meditation, hate the word meditation, it sounds so frou-frou and uppity. Um, but yeah, just trying to get into that. And one of the things I've realized is if I have one other person in my life, I have some sense of tribe. I have somebody else to live for, somebody to talk with. Uh, all of my plans are partly for that person. And it's a beautiful thing. It feels like that feels a little closer to the sense of self we're meant to explore as as humans. And when I don't have that, when I'm by myself, the only way I can make sense of my life is to fall into a more monastic mindset. Um, to go within, as the Buddha might say. To begin to meditate, to uh, contemplate, to take long walks, to reflect. Um, I feel like that is what you do with solitude. And that also is a very valuable, beautiful thing. Um, so yeah, trying to trying to do that, trying to take responsibility for my life, get to know myself again. Um, you know, the, this idea of self—it's such a—I I could spend all, all the, an entire episode talking about self, and maybe we will somewhere down the road. But that's not what I'm doing here. But let me just say that that's a big part of what's happening right now for me. Um, and again, I know. You know, big deal, like, you know, the, the tragedy that Teresa's family is dealing with. But um, all I can talk about is what I'm uh, experiencing right here. And, yeah, that sense of self, just, you know, me and Sherlock st stinking up the van. <coughs> Both of us, I reckon. And, yeah, taking responsibility. However the day goes, you know, it's got nothing to do with anybody else. It's how I choose it. And uh, I have to take responsibility for a day that just feels however it's going to feel. And so much of that is so weather-dependent. Today, like I said, man, the next several days look rainy. Winter's long. Here I am back in North Carolina. Um, it's challenging. And when we get those beautiful days, you know, then I take off my shoes. I feel the earth on my feet. Um, but it's all in how I receive it. There's nothing wrong with a rainy day. It just kind of lends itself to, uh, stagnation, something. And what I wanted to do with this episode, since I'm by myself, I'm like, man, what am I going to do by myself? I don't really want to, I'm a stickler for a schedule. I'm a stickler for, uh, discipline and routine. Cause it's, if I don't have that, everything just falls apart. I mean, I just turn into a slob mess. I need some kind of, like, things happen in a certain order. And so I'm a big stickler for finishing out a season. So I didn't want to just, like, leave the podcast, uh, you know, and, and put it on pause. I'm like, well, let's just 
do the last two episodes and however they need to be. So what am I going to do by myself and nobody else to talk to? And I figure I will address our backlog of listener write-ins. I always invite listeners to write in questions, comments, all that at the end of every episode. And um, some of you have um, in all kinds of ways. I get Facebook messages. I get uh, messages through our Escaping Society Facebook page. A few of you even actually write through our website, which uh, thank you so much for that. That's awesome. Um, but I just write them in a little notebook, and we get a backlog of comments. So I figure I'll, I'll address some of that and just see where that goes. Um, and maybe that'll be like people being here to talk to me, um, kind of in a schizophrenic, kind of crazy, homeless person way. And uh, yeah, and right now I'm sitting in my van, as I said. Got the iPad on the steering wheel, leaning into it. Got a few uh, devices plugged into an outlet in this covered shelter as it's starting to rain, and the shelter reeks of homeless people's piss, um, mostly not mine. So, let's get started. Get my little Escaping Society notepad here that is falling apart. Perforated paper really sucks for shit like this. Um, and I will start with Brian from Portland, Oregon. Now, Brian is actually uh, someone who donates to our podcast. He's the only person that donates on a monthly basis. So thank you, Brian, for that. Um, you know, every beginning every month, we get a tiny uh, a little contribution from Brian that is uh, very much appreciated. And Brian writes, my iPad keeps falling off the steering wheel. He did not write that. That was me. Um, stay, you bastard. All right. Not you, Brian. You can go wherever you want. But Brian wrote from Portland, Oregon, and I don't know how people from Portland, Oregon sound, so I'm not going to try to do a voice. Dear Teresa and Gumby, I've been listening to your podcast starting with episode one and hope to get current someday. I have comments on earlier episodes in my notes that I'll share someday, but just but was just listening to the Boiling Frog episode and wanted to make a quick a quick couple comments. First, I agree with Gumby about Quinn's views on the Salvationist religions and that they were likely easily and readily adopted by those who experienced hell on earth. We don't know the origins of the stories and myths, but can imagine people with no hope and shitty lives would welcome heaven when they died. And he's referring to uh, Quinn talking about the pie in the sky when you die, you know, sold to the poor masses. Like, your lives have to suck now. That's the natural order of things. The rich people deserve it because God favors them or whatever. And uh, if you just obey and do what you're supposed to, like it says right here in the Bible, you will be rewarded in heaven. So that's what he's referring to. He goes on to say, right after the story of B came out, I had an opportunity to hear Dr. Marcus Borg, love that name, you will be assimilated, speak in Portland at my UU church. He was a Jesus scholar and had just published Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time, the Historical Jesus in the Heart of Contemporary Faith. I don't know why I have to say that in a southern accent. That's the way I grew up. He talked about Jesus as a radical human, born in a well-developed taker society. My words, not his. That's Brian writing this. He talked about his mom and dad, but went no further back in time than his parents. Having read B, it seemed maddening that he didn't fully appreciate that Jesus was a product of his society, and his message was a reaction to that society. If the same dude had been born in North America at the same time, preaching the same message, he would have been lost to the ages. 
I spoke to Dr. Borg afterwards and asked him if he had read Ishmael, and in fact he had. I then asked him if he had read B, and he hadn't. Finally, I want to recommend a couple books you might enjoy. First, Empire of the Summer Moon, Quanta Parker and the Rise and Fall of the Comanches, the most powerful Indian tribe in American history. Holy shit, what a long title that is. But I did read that book, actually, and I uh, loved it. Um, really good book. I want to back up that recommendation. He goes on to say, I could say a bunch about it, but don't want to give any of it away. Next, I'm currently reading How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. I kind of get a feeling Brian was telling me that maybe I'm saying some like racist-sounding shit on the podcast, but uh, I could be wrong about that, but I have not read that one. I would be open to it, though. I'm uh, The library's been challenging lately, and I'm reading some shit lately, so it would probably be a step up for me. Thought you might enjoy it. I was just listening to Chapter 3 this morning, and it covered many things, including the history of race, slavery, and power. I hope you are doing well, and that you look me up if you ever get to Portland, Oregon. Well, thank you, Brian, for that message. Um, yeah, talk about recommending Ishmael and everything. I also recommend Ishmael. I, I recommend it highly. I do think people get a little caught up in it. I'm on a few uh, Ishmael, Daniel Quinn Facebook pages, and people will recite things like, well, Daniel Quinn wrote, it's like it's, like it's the Bible. Um as I've said before, I think Daniel Quinn was a fantastic thinker, and I will always be thankful for the questions he's raised and the observations he's made always blow me away. How the fuck does somebody, like, see this stuff and think about this stuff? Um, but he was a human being. You know, there are things that I disagree with Daniel Quinn on, so um, I don't say, like, well, Daniel Quinn said, because he might very well be wrong. A lot of things Daniel Quinn said he didn't seem to actually get around to doing. And, uh, yeah, a lot of the heroes in our culture of, uh, in the resistance, the resistance, um, from Jeff Gibbs, God, that guy, to Michael Moore, to Derek Jensen, to a lot of people, I mean, we're all falling short of our ideologies. I, 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 I don't, uh, I don't want to put any of these guys too high on a pedestal. Benefit from what you can. Everybody's got something to share. I feel like if you got the right mindset, the right view, everybody's got something you can benefit to share. So listen. Definitely listen. I listen to these podcasts. I listen to uh, all these guys' podcasts. And uh, I benefit from them. But, yeah, they have their limitations. And as far as Jesus being born here now, I agree. He would just be, uh, we'd probably call him a domestic terrorist. Um, you know, and isn't that kind of what happened before, too? Uh, he got crucified. You know, this guy was considered a dangerous quack. Um, yeah, it's incredible that... One message that I, I, I really respect that came through both Jesus, Buddha, and many other people is that Jesus wasn't a Christian. Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. Um, I don't feel like any of these guys were really trying to do a David Koresh thing, you know? They were trying to really encourage us to, to seek our own path, and they were sharing their own, like, this works for me. If you don't have something better that you're as confident in as I am confident in how well this what that I'm doing works, try it. Try it. And it, it, it all seems to be about renunciation, letting stuff go. Um, and I think that's beautiful. And I agree. Like, if, if Jesus showed up 
now, you know, like you, there's all these churches like, he's going to come again. There's that southern accent again. Um, that he would be probably killed again. He would be probably cruci- crucified by the very people, by the Christians. Um, so yeah, a lot of uh, short-sightedness in that. And I think it, it goes back to the fact that we are trying to follow someone, just like people try to follow Daniel Quinn. Instead, you know, in in I'm going to quote Daniel Quinn as if he wrote the Bible. If they give you line paper right sideways, Daniel Quinn really over and over is trying to help people see this is how I think. I feel like Daniel Quinn, I get a lot of uh, impatience through his writing, a growing amount of impatience, like when he wrote Beyond Civilization, because people kept saying, well, I get all your observations about civilization and taker culture from the Ishmael trilogy, but what do we do? He didn't know what to do, so he tried it. He, he took a shot at it, and I did feel like it wasn't as good of a book as his Ishmael trilogy. The questions were powerful, not the answers. Daniel Quinn doesn't have your answers. Jesus doesn't have your answers. They have some good advice that might help you reach your answers. Um, but yeah, let me see if I've got anything else to say about any of that. That was a good uh, detailed message Brian wrote. Um, I guess not. I'll move on with the next comment. Hopefully, it'll be from somewhere that I can do one of my delightful accents, because uh, I know everybody loves those. All right, here we go. Yeah. Martha Rose from Hampshire, England. Now, Martha Rose wrote us a while back, and she mentioned, like, getting a boat that uh, she was fixing up to live in, and, you know... Um, just heading out on some kind of adventure where she's kind of doing her own, like, renunciation of society, kind of her own van life, but on a boat. So Martha Rose Rose wrote us, um, and this was after we put out the episode, Pretending Interview Gumby. And she wrote, oh, God, let's see if I do an English accent. Hey, guys, currently working my ass off on my own vessel of escapement. Randomly caught this episode while desperately trying to get her water ready and prepared for a classic British winter. Gratitude and thanks not only for this relation entertainment, but all you guys have made. A much more self-sufficient and beautiful way of living soon to become. Thanks for all of your help and work. Well, thank you, Martha Rose, and I would love to hear back from you and hear how that's going. That's exciting that you're, uh... I've always wondered about the houseboat thing, but I get seasick. I spent a summer... Um, on an Alaskan fishing boat, and oh my god, I puked my guts out so much. So that doesn't sound particularly appealing to me, but the adventure of it, the uh, the unknown of it sounds really cool. And thank you for your gratitude, Martha Rose. I hope you're still benefiting. Um, I always think of these people that have given us such high props when we come out with episodes and we go off on another like tangent of, uh, um, what would I say, controversial shit. On the one hand, I hope I don't lose the support of people who have supported and benefited from us. But on the other hand, I can't think like that. Um, otherwise, we're just going to become another watered-down fucking uh, catering to people. I'm not going to feel like we really have a message unless we're being honest and trying to challenge people, including ourselves. Um, I might argue passionately for something one week, and then the next podcast argue equally passionate passionately for something the next week, and I feel like that is appropriate. 
Um, that shows that I'm thinking. That shows that I'm I'm considering. Um, like Walt Whitman says, do I contradict myself? Very well, I am multifaceted. I contain the masses. That's what I want to shoot for. Um, so yeah, hopefully we have not driven you off, off Martha Rose and you're still benefiting from our podcast. And uh, um, yeah, thanks again. And let's see. Oh, Michael from Kingsport, Tennessee. All right. <coughs> Here's where I get to use my southern accent, motherfuckers. So Michael from Kingsport, Tennessee wrote, this was after we put out The House That Peter Built, which is a really fun episode. That was one of Teresa's picks. And uh, I was like, eh, it'll be all right. But then it came out and I was like, wow, that's pretty good. I like it. He writes, great episode. And you guys should definitely look into a guy named Thomas Merton. It was his monastery, Gethsemane, that Daniel Quinn lived as a Trappist monk. Merton was a fascinating guy, and he basically is the embodiment of everything y'all talked about in this episode. And he actually wrote y'all, so I think I got this accent right. His whole philosophy was the perfect synthesis between Christianity, Buddhism, pacifism, and radical egalitarian social justice ideas. Well, that didn't sound very Southern. <coughs> He wrote a ton of books that are all amazing, and Daniel Quinn's own autobiography, called My Providence, I Believe, touches on Merton and his ideas a lot. Well, thank you, Michael, and uh, I did read that, My Providence, and it was really good. Um, it's interesting to kind of see where that comes from, especially the part in My Providence that stood out to me was uh, the part that actually uh, Michael pointed out, where he's a Trappist monk, he's following the Christian path, the Christian contemplative path, and... Um, he has this experience where he starts seeing like this light, this energy, this life flowing through all things. And it was just, you know, I'm not doing it justice. You're going to have to read the book, but it was profound. And he goes to share it with Thomas Merton and uh, Thomas Merton didn't seem that impressed with it. So it sounds like Daniel Quinn kind of got disillusioned to this Christian path and started leaning more towards animism um, I felt a couple things when I read that. One, I feel like Daniel Quinn's ego was kind of flexing there. He wanted some kind of validation from his teacher that he didn't get. And I don't know if he ever realized, uh, if he ever got enough perspective on it to consider how much his ego was involved in his interpretation of that event. That, again, this is just my interpretation, so what the hell do I know? Um, and the other thing that was beautiful is that that light moving through all things, you know, he later goes on to write um, in other books about the fire that moves through through the bird, the worm, the grass, the fire that burns through all things that one day you're going to you're going to see the world through the eyes of the deer that we're all like this fire gets passed through all of us. It's beautiful. And I, I feel like the way he describes it is exactly this experience that he described in my providence. That's why he, he calls it a fire. And, uh, yeah, that's the way I see animism, too. You know, just this life we share that um, instead of fighting so damn hard, like, you know, and I know I'm going to step on a lot of toes here, but it won't be the first time, will it? Um, this whole vaccination, COVID-19 thing, you know, this this desperate clutching at life. Um, I feel like that comes from a, a place of not recognizing that fire. If death comes, death is not something I need to fight Death is something that is natural, and all it is is me passing on that fire. My death is the life of another. 
Um, and in this time where death just seems to be all around us, whether it's from COVID or not, um, I feel like that's so important to remember that for each death, uh, the life of another, there's a, there's a finite amount of biomass on this planet. Again, I also got this from Daniel Quinn, kind of blew my mind when he uh, pointed out that the more people there are, there has to be less of something else because there's a finite amount of biomass. And uh, oh, I was wrong. Sherlock did want to hold up his end of the conversation. Oh, goody. Um, so yeah, thank you for that. And, uh, Thomas Merton, you know, I have not read anything by Thomas Merton. Um, actually, it's not exactly true. I read something from the Dalai Lama where he's, uh, kind of getting interviewed. I forget what th this was. It was like a, a group where they try to bring the Dalai Lama together with like physicists or, or contemplatives or thinkers and, one of them during one of these groups was Thomas Merton, and I was pretty impressed with him too. I love that he's not just uh, the dogma of Christianity, but brings in that contemplative aspect. So thank you for bringing that up, Michael. Um, and yeah, listeners, if you want to check out Thomas Merton, maybe I'll add him to my list too. Um, where do we go from here? Oh, oh, I like this one. Oh, shit. <coughs> Ireland. All right. Sorry, Ireland. And by the way, when I did Martha Rose from England, I'm sorry that turned into an Australian accent. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. This is Sean from Belfast, Ireland. Hi, guys. I'm new to your podcast and just listened to your excellent Robin Hood, Robin the Hood episode. Just wanted to add in another hero of mine. He was dubbed the Russian Robin Hood, Nestor Makhno. Makhno? M-A-K-H-N-O. His story inspired me to be an anarchist. He was from Ukraine and inspired a large insurgent anarchist army that fought for freedom during the Russian Civil War in 1919 through 1923. He was hailed as a hero by the local persona who were screwed over by the Bolsheviks when they stole the peasant cry for all power to the Soviets, which was essentially an anarchist system. They promised this to the peasants as it's what they wanted, but the Red Army brought totalitarianism instead. Nestor Makhno would start a jailbreak in every town he went to as his first action, as he knew all Pepsi Olmers were political prisoners and his mentor was Peter Kropotkin. Also, instead of killing his Red Army enemies, he would instead try to reason with them to join him, which most often they would do. Lenin actually had a sit-down meeting with Makhno, and they both argued their cases for anarchy versus totalitarianism. Ultimately, the Red Army had more guns than Nestor's Green Army, and so they violently repressed the anarchist insurgents. He's an amazing historical figure, and I just thought you guys would like to hear about him. Love what you guys are doing, by the way. Stay safe and have fun. Well, thank you, Sean, from Belfast, Ireland. Uh, we get other people from, like, uh, have written in from Dublin, Ireland. I think you're, you're our only Belfast guy. And Nestor... Macno. I ran into his name somewhere because I wrote down your message and I'd never heard of him at the time. And then somewhere I ran into his name and it was like, wow, yeah, this guy sounds really cool. I, I've been meaning to read up more on him. But uh, so a nod to him for anybody who wants to check out Nestor Macno, N-E-S-T-O-R-M-A-K-H-N-O. Um, I love how apparently, according to this, uh, what Sean sent us, he would just enter these villages and, like, release people from the prisons. 
um, that makes sense. You know, if I had that kind of power, like I could just store them into a, a community that one of the first things you would do is release all the, the prisoners. You might release some bad guys in there, but um, I think about the Black Panther Party, you know, about how they were really fighting for, this is our community. Let us decide who the people who are dangerous are in our community, not these white officers coming into our black neighborhoods. And I kind of feel like that's true justice, that a community itself gets to decide what's appropriate for their community, that tribalism. So, yeah, I, I and I'm going off on a tangent here. This, this has got probably nothing to do with what Sean was talking about. But I feel like, you know, if we didn't have police, that instead of the narrative we're taught is that police protect us, the thin blue line between the citizenry and the, the, the crime wave, and that police protect us from that. I feel like police actually uphold a system that creates this crime. It's, it almost reminds me of the way Daniel Quinn talks about a famine, that a famine would be something, hunger is something that naturally corrects itself. Um, basic ecology. Um, if there's too many people for the resources on the land, then the populations readjust until that's no longer true. It ebbs and flows. There are times of hunger. There are times of abundance. Uh, lax and larders, as we say in tracking. I almost feel like it's the same thing with the cops. The, the reason why a famine keeps going, by the way, going back to Quinn, is that we send in food. And so instead of the problem fixing itself, it never gets fixed. There's still too many people and then more people that outstrip the resources on the land. Um, and, of course, there's a lot of other factors in that. That's a whole <clears throat> whole thing in itself. But cops, I feel like, protect a system where people are not served, people are separated, where there's people over here that have too much and people over here that have too little, and that that would not be able to stand for very long if there weren't some kind of enforcement officers. If it's not the modern cop, it was the henchman to the king. It was it was some kind of person in power that wants more than their share. And instead of the natural way that people uh, get a following, become leaders, which is generosity. These are the people you want to follow. You know, you don't. This, this person doesn't need guards because every person that's following him will protect him if he's proving himself to be a good listener, a person who's really looking out for your best interest, a generous person, it's the person that's not looking out for your best interests, that is sapping you dry like a fucking parasite. That's the person that needs enforcement. And that's basically what the modern cop is. They're the thin blue line between the poor and the rich, which can very generally be broken down between the law-abiding people who do horrible things, but because they make the laws, they're legal technically, and the poor who are driven, whether it's through direct stealing of a loaf of bread if they're hungry, to just the misery of being poor, so now they're addicted to some substance that, uh, you know, let's not even get into what the CIA brings into these neighborhoods and shit like that, but some substance that they get so addicted to that they they commit a crime so they can keep that substance. Um, yeah. So anyway, yeah, it makes a lot of sense to, uh, as one of your first tactics, to say, I don't accept who you've identified as the outlaws. Let's start over here. And if one of these outlaws is indeed somebody who's bad for the people, let's let the people take care of it. The people will organize if people would be allowed to organize. Um, we already know how to do this shit. We did it for millennia. 
part of the great lie we're taught is that we don't know how, that we need people that are smarter than us, that are better armed. Um, this just isn't true. And if you if you don't believe me, look around at the world. Look at the crime that still exists. Has any of these things that we're supposed to be protected from been fixed? We've got cops everywhere. I mean, Jesus Christ, the amount of law enforcement I passed just to get to this park. And then as I'm sitting here, the, the law enforcement I see, actually, I haven't seen any law enforcement. But on another day, I might have seen a lot. Um, it's crazy that there's that many armed babysitters walking around to keep everything in check. And yet, there's crime everywhere. There's people stealing shit. There's, there's, I mean, drugs. There's, there's people addicted to stuff. And that's only the stuff that is illegal by our society standards. Let's not even, even get into the things that are immoral that we all do. Every single damn rat bastard one of us from the cars driving by to the light switches being flipped. Things we don't need that we've been addicted to just like the crackhead is addicted to crack. And just like the crackhead who's addicted to crack, we justify it. You know, <laughs> probably more so, I would imagine. That we need things that are destructive, that are horrible, that are bad for people, bad for life. Um, and we convince ourselves we need them. But anyway, <laughs> thank you, Sean. Whew. See what happens when I have to talk by myself? This is a window into my mind. Our next listener, right? Damn it, you iPad. You stay there. Stay there. Stay there on the steering wheel. Stay. All right. <clears throat> we have Saul from Raleigh, North Carolina. This is not Saul's... Well, I was going to say real name. Let's just say I know Saul by another name. And Saul writes, this was after the Survival Overnights podcast. And uh, let's see. Let's see what accent I'll do. All right, fuck it. It's Raleigh. I don't know. He wrote, listening to the Survival Overnights podcast, and it's bringing back so many memories. I know it doesn't matter, but my ego won't let me not mention that the second time through, I ended up doing the last four-nighter on my own. So uh, Saul did the survival overnights. You know, if you listen to that episode, he uh, did them with us. He was actually a uh, one of the people that got them started with me. Um, so yeah, that's why he's referring to this. I don't care about it being on the podcast. I guess I just wanted you to know for whatever it's worth. I know it's dumb. Also, that's fucking awesome about Aosha. I'm definitely going to watch that. Yeah, and we mentioned Aosha, one of the people going to the, the Survival Overnights that did an episode of Naked and Afraid. I have not watched that episode. Um, I'm still trying to, like, steal myself to have to see his naked buttocks. But, uh, yeah, that's awesome that he did it. And uh, hopefully I get an episode with Aosha. He said whenever he's in town, he would gladly do a an interview um, sent me a really nice message talking about how, uh, you know, he thought a lot about the, the survival overnights when he was doing Naked and Afraid, and, uh, you know, there's a little part of me that hopes he mentions the survival overnights in the episode, but we'll see. Um, all right, here, I've been waiting to get to this one. Actually, uh, this was, this is Monique from Hokitika, New Zealand. Now, I'm assuming New Zealanders have a Australianist, Australianesque accent. Um, so I'm going to take a shot at this. Apparently, if I just do an English accent, it comes out Australian anyway, so this will be easy. Monique has written before, and uh, I really appreciate Monique's uh, insights and um, what she says here. 
So here we go. And this was in response to Black Magic White Science Part 1. I enjoyed the science podcast. Very much enjoyed hearing about your journey with science. Teresa's research on creepy, evil science experiments really nailed your points home. You might enjoy the book The Reenchantment of the World by Morris Berman. That does sound like a book I would enjoy. Random bugbear of mine. People never believed the world was flat. Ancient civilizations had accurate calculations of the size of the Earth. Math proof for Earth being round was standard in medieval textbooks. The only people seriously thinking the Earth is flat are those peeps living today in the USA. Scientism leads to stupid places often, like people genuinely believing humans could live on Mars. Thanks again for the great podcast. Another comment, read the podcast. The double-slit experiment does not imply that consciousness has changed reality. It's a measurement problem. There are a few videos on YouTube that do a good job of explaining. I think the issue is how they are using the word observation. They don't mean looking at it at a distance. They have to physically interfere with the wave particle to observe it. I 100% agree with your opinions on science, and that how we see and interact with the real world affects it. This experiment, in a way, brings up a big problem with the scientific method, in that you can never truly have an independent observer. The scientist is always part of the experiment. That's a big issue for many areas of study. That book by Morris Berman does a good job of explaining this. You might also like this. Basically, most research in psychology cannot be replicated. This is a huge deal because replication is a basic part of the scientific method. I suspect there are other fields with similar issues. I, for one, lost my shit with science ages ago for continually fucking up what we are supposed to eat and what is actually healthy. Even the science isn't scientific. <laughs> I don't know how to do a ha 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 in Australian accent. <clears throat> so, first of all, Monique, <laughs> first of all, I recognize the shit sandwich when I see one. <laughs> and I laughed so hard when I realized Monique sent me a shit sandwich. If you don't know what a shit sandwich is, it's considered like a really good way that if you want to bring up a criticism for somebody in a diplomatic way, tell them something good, fit the criticism in the middle, that's the shit. And uh, since it's from uh, New Zealand, I wonder if it's got a little Vegemite spread on top of it. I had some Vegemite sent to me one time and... Uh, I didn't like it at first. My American palate kind of reacted, but uh, it's, it's addictive. It's kind of like soy sauce. But anyway, and then you say something nice at the end. So that's the bread. So uh, <laughs> here's the bread part, the bottom piece. I enjoyed the science podcast. Very much enjoyed hearing your journey with science. Teresa's research on creepy evil science experiments really nailed your points home. Um, and then she goes on to criticize the... Uh, the flat earth thing. Now, I was aware, and these are valid uh, criticisms, by the way. I'm not trying to shoot them down. Um, but yeah, I was aware that it was known, um, like, God, I watched Cosmos by Carl Sagan. came out in the 80s, and this is where I first heard about it, where there was this guy that, like, noticed that the shadows of, like, a pole or something would be different at different times of day. And he had one of his servants or slaves walk like miles and miles and miles to this other town and take careful recordings of the shadow, like how long it was. And then um, did some kind of calculations of like, 
if this shadow is here and the shadow in my town is here, and let's imagine the straight line, this pole going to the earth until they intersect, because that's what it implies, then the earth must be a certain size, a certain, uh, and it must be round. And his calculations were actually amazingly close. So yeah, that is pretty awesome. Um, and to me, you know, it's in that fuzzy line between does science claim a monopoly on observation? Um, I wouldn't necessarily call that science, at least the way I use the term, um, that makes me think of modern science, lab coats, all that shit, um, a whole philosophy that goes with it. To me, that's almost like tracking, you know, it's like just, wow, how the hell did he even observe that? You know, that's one of those things like Daniel Quinn's observations, like how the hell, like, how do the rest of us just walk around like, you know, doing our dumb crap? And this one guy's like, hmm, I noticed the shadow is just a tiny bit different. What are the implications? Wow, what a mind. And the double slit experiment, the wave-particle duality of light. Yeah, I knew I was going out on a limb when I, I, I said that because I don't really understand that well enough to feel confident in saying, like... Um, what I said in the podcast was basically, when I look at a tree, I am affecting the tree by looking at it. And I acted like that was uh, validated by this wave-particle double-slit experiment of light. And Monique is right that that's not exactly true. I'm, I'm taking a little bit of truth and then kind of like uh, warping it in a way that necessarily isn't appropriate. Um, so she's saying that actually... It has some truth that there's no, uh, what is it, objective, independent observer that by making an experiment, things change, um, but you have to physically interfere with it. That's what happened with the wave, um, the, the wave-particle duality of light. And if you're not familiar with that, they did an experiment to see if wave is actually a, a particle or a wave, and they proved it was a particle in one experiment, and then proved it was a wave in another experiment. But it's not that they stood back and just watched it, and poof, it turned into one or the other. It's that they interfered with it, and it became one. So it's still an amazing experiment with amazing implications. But uh, to say that that's akin to me looking at a tree, and uh, that I change it by looking at it, is inaccurate. But I also consider a lot of the, uh, science keeps us in a very mechanistic realm, a mechanistic way of thinking. In other words, the tree is if it has this independent, solid reality, and that's all that can be said about it. And likewise for me over here, and there's this empty space in between us. But, you know, I think of more of like kind of the, the mystical, the, the, the Buddhist, um, considerations. And I still believe that we affect things by looking at them. Even if, let's say I look at this tree, and even if it's the implications that follow that, for instance, if I look at that tree and I see a thing of beauty, I see a thing of poetry, I see a life form that's an elder that's older than me, it evokes a certain energy in me. It evokes a certain way I'm going to treat that tree. It evokes how my presence and what I do next 
intertwines with the fate of this tree. Whereas if I see the tree from a distance as a commodity, a thing that has no life, um, I will be more inclined to treat the tree in a, in a different way. Maybe even cut it down for lumber. Maybe, uh, you know, just my whole interaction with the tree is different, which does have a physical impact on the tree. And uh, I think about these plant experiments that they've done where people talk to plants, people will rip up a plant next to another plant that's being monitored, and they've scientifically proven that the plant that is around the plant that got ripped up will freak the fuck out. Um, so even that, just the way I see the tree, has a effect. But yeah, I agree that the experiment doesn't do a very good job of uh, backing that up. It was kind of an odd thing to uh, fit in, so thank you for bringing that up, Monique. Fair enough. And we're getting towards the end, so I won't read too many more of these, but I'll go to uh, Ramen of Tempe, Arizona. Um, Ramen actually sent us a uh, really hilarious voice recording. We read one of his uh, messages at the end of Black Magic White Science Part 2, I think. And... You know, he he sent us a recording of himself reading in an Indian accent, because he was actually uh, born in India, um, beginning to read his message, and then he gets to the end and just in an American accent. He's like, I ain't going to read the whole damn thing. Um, <laughs> so this is his follow-up message after that, and uh, I'm going to try to read it in an Indian accent. Teresa read the last one. And if you think I can't out Indian an Indian, um, let me just point out that several years ago I was dating a Chinese woman. And I mean, she was right from China. She hadn't been in the country like more than a few months. And she invited me over for dinner to her apartment with her daughter. Also, not talking any English. And uh, she set out, you know, traditional Chinese dinner. We all have chopsticks. And just playfully, I challenged them to a a uh, contest to see who can take the most, I forget if it was pieces of rice, it was something small with the chopsticks in a certain amount of time and like get to 20 or something with the chopsticks. And I beat them. I beat them. These people have been using chopsticks their whole lives and I beat them. So I out Chinese the Chinese people. So don't think I can't out Indian an Indian person. <clears throat> with that said, here I go. Hi, Teresa and Gumby. If I'd known you were going to read my letter in the Science as a Religion episode of your podcast, I'd have mentioned science seduces its recruits by its utility disguised as truth. Damn, there's some Irish in there. In other words, science claims it is about truth when it is about utility. I want to restart working on creative projects, so I'm scaling back the day job. I'm starting a podcast called Incompetent Gods. The point I want to make is this. We think the world is better off in our capable hands, but every action we take is good for some and bad for others. Make us incompetent gods. Do you have any suggestions or tips or lessons learned for me? Want to be guest on the first episode? All right, all right, I butchered that. I, I concede defeat. I did not out-Indian the Indian. Um, goddamn. So, yes, um, check out if you get a chance. I don't know if he started it yet, but Incompetent Gods. It sounds like an interesting premise. Um, and yeah, advice. Well, I responded to him. Um, 
I don't have what I wrote to him right in front of me, but basically anybody making a podcast, I'd say, you know, if you want to do this, for one thing, everybody and their fucking brother is making a podcast now. So if you're going to do it, the competition out there is huge. If you think you're going to like make a big splash and get a bunch of listeners, you're probably not. There's people with bigger names and uh, a better setup than you're likely to have that are already doing that, and there's so much competition. So I'd say first and foremost, ask yourself why you're doing the podcast. The only reason we're finishing up our seventh season right now with a small listenership um, very little support, is because we knew right from the beginning that what we're doing is for us. You know, we didn't need to be validated. So if you're, you've got big, big expectations, you're probably going to get discouraged. You might be one of the few that gets lucky and just people glom onto it and like, whoa, you know, you're, you're big. But I wouldn't go in with that expectation. Um, do it for you. I, I love our podcast. Sometimes I listen back to our episodes, um, to remind myself of some of the things we've learned. And, um, it's kind of like journal entries for us. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, we did that. Like, uh, Peace Pilgrim, man, remember that rest stop in, in California where the van was like all screwing up and we did that episode? Um, you know, they're, they're personally satisfying for us. I would also say, whatever you got to share, go for it. Um, fuck the censorship. They might shut you down, but you, you can't think like that. Be vulnerable. Share stuff. Share embarrassing stuff. Um, go out on a limb. Uh, that's something I would tell people doing a podcast. You know, if it, if you're not going out on a limb, if you're not being vulnerable, if you're not taking some risks, what the hell's the point? Um, don't be afraid of being wrong. Try to be honest. Be humble. If you don't know what the hell you're talking about, you can still talk about it, but tell people, all right, I don't really know what the hell I'm talking about here, but I'm taking a shot anyway. Um, yeah, just don't be afraid to correct yourself. Um, I guess that goes back to the vulnerability, you know, take some risks. Um, that'd be the advice I'd give, you know, just consider why you're doing it and, uh, bring what you've got to share. Um, another thing I told Raman is, uh, you know, try to find that unique thing that you're bringing, you know, like. Derek Jensen does a podcast. He's an author that is well-researched um, with environmental issues and has a huge network of people that he can interview that have written books, that are professors, that are experts. I can't compete with that. It would be, why would I try? Why would I step in there just to try to do it my way? He's already doing it. He's doing it better than I could. What Derek Jensen can't do is to talk about a hobo lifestyle. He's not washing his hairy balls in a creek. Um, he's not like, he, he doesn't go through his days getting looked at by people like a dirty homeless guy. This is a perspective that's unique to me. And there's not a lot of other people I've encountered doing podcasts that are kind of doing the hobo angle. So that's something we try to play up. Um, you know, that's why our theme song is, you know, right away, we live in a van and eat from the trash because that's what's unique. So I'd say if you're doing a podcast, writing a book, uh, making, damn, drop the iPad again, making a documentary, um, really consider what that unique thing is you have to share. And you do have something unique to share. We all do. But sometimes it takes a little bit of, uh, searching for it. And sometimes you might not, not have developed it. I know a lot of people that, uh, 
whatever that unique thing is they have to share, it's still buried because they're still trying to fit in. They're still afraid of uh, public opinion. Fuck public opinion. One of the best things that ever happened to me is when I truly, truly understood that everybody is stark, raving, fucking mad. That was a liberating observation. Um, I don't care what people think. You know, there's a few people that I get close to that when I, uh, if they think negatively about me, I'm not going to say I never care. Um, but I don't care what people in the wide world out there think. And if, if I'm being honest with myself, with my words, um, yeah, it's the best I can do. And if people don't accept that, well, that's kind of for them to, to deal with. So, yeah. Let me see if there's one more that I can read. Now I'm kind of looking for... Oh, yeah, here's one. <laughs> Old Keith from Scotland. Uh, let me see if I can do a Scottish, Scottish accent. Scottish. Donka! Donka! All right, I think I got it. <laughs> now this was after Tranny Granny. And we got a lot of feedback from Tranny Granny. I got a lot of comments. I just didn't read them right now. Um, and they were all positive, except... For Keith from Scotland. He wrote, Hey, damn it, lost it. Hey, just had to, hey, Scotland, Scotland, hey, all right. Hey, just had to remove the link to the Tranny Granny podcast. Not because of the name, she calls herself that, but references to before the surgery and as a man. It's uncomfortable language for a lot of trans people. Sorry. Just for comparison, as I know not everybody, everyone gets this, it's a bit like referring to a person of color's distant relative who might happen to be white, but they always refer to themselves as black. If you can take that bit out, then it's all cool. Thanks for being understanding. I usually get really angry responses to moderation. All power. Ah, what a load of horseshit that was. Um, appreciate the writing. Um... But yeah, of course, anybody's free to remove, like, I, 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 you know, I'll be part of, like, Facebook pages or whatever and share links to our website. And to me, it's an invitation, you know. I figure if people don't want to listen to it, they don't have to listen to it. It's just kind of like, eh, you might like this, try it, don't like it, fucking keep scrolling. Um, Keith felt like this was offensive, and I feel like that's just so much bullshit. Why are we so worried about offending this one group of people? What about me? I'm offended. What about somebody else that's offended? Um, it's just so fucking ridiculous. What is with this one super fragile little delicate group of people that we have to fucking change the whole English language, the whole uh, system of how we shit and piss so we don't offend this one slice of people? I don't fucking get it. Um, basically, I just say toughen the fuck up. You know, if some somebody's like, bullying you, you know, like threatening you with violence, like calling you names, that person's a fucking asshole, and it doesn't matter what their stance is, they should be dealt with as a fucking asshole. You know, if you're around somebody and there's some guy dressed up as a woman and a bunch of fucking rednecks, you're like hanging around and like, hey, you fucking faggot or whatever, yeah, step in there, fucking, you know, intervene. It doesn't matter whether you agree with transsexualism or whatever, it matters that you don't agree with fucking assholes. To me, it's just so basic, and it gets needlessly complicated, and that needless complication does not serve anybody. And his, uh, this weird example of, like, comparing it to a black person, let's see, what do we have here? 
Just for comparison, as I know not everyone gets this, it's a bit like referring to a person of color's distant relative who might happen to be white, but they always refer to themselves as black. I don't think that's a comparison at all. Um, biology exists, and this is the guy that just did a two-part episode condemning science. So here's me putting on the other cap and uh, actually, like, defending science in a way. Biology fucking exists. There are, in fact, penises and vaginas, and there are ways to define something as male or something as female. It It's not telling you what to do with your equipment. It's just saying this is blatant, like, you know, it's Orwellian to tell me that, like, all right, let's Phoenicia. Phoenicia was born a man. If that offends Phoenicia, that's Phoenicia's fucking problem. If I if I if Phoenicia was here and you know, it was back in time before she got the sex change and she was offended by my saying that, she can tell me to go fuck myself. And if I'm not an asshole, I might even since I'm dealing with an individual say, I'll call you what you choose to be called. If you want to be called a she, all right. I mean, what's it cost me? But to ask me to actually see, to pretend that that penis and those testicles don't make you a man? That's like from 1984 where they're telling Winston 2 plus 2 doesn't equal 4. I'm sorry, it does. And if you are offended by that, that's not a problem on my end, except for this completely insane political climate that is trying to make it a problem on my end. Cancel culture, woke culture... Fucking crazy shit. This is not a hateful statement. This is an observation. (sighs) I thought I was actually being kind of expansive by, after the sex change, referring to Phoenicia as a woman, because in my heart of hearts, I don't believe you can get surgery and become the opposite sex. I don't. Um, I was doing that out of respect for Phoenicia because Phoenicia seemed to see it that way. And so what's it cost me? Like I said, if Phoenicia sees it that way and I know that she sees it that way, fine. I'd say if you, if I was, you know, I have been a teacher plenty of times. If I had someone who was transgender in my group and I subjected them to some information out there that was, uh, you know, said something of a similar nature that, like, this person was a man, born a man, then they got, you know, gender reassignment. I would use that as a conversation starter. Um, not to condemn you, not to tell you what to do, but to talk about biology, but to talk about, you know, when you hear things that you disagree with, what do you do with that? Um, how much do we take responsibility for ourselves? You know, the this. <clears throat> this whole climate is just this this censorship this it's all interconnected changing everything externally making people see what you want them to see in only the way you want them to see it it is tyranny and it is ugly and i will not go along with it um and again with that said i feel like there's a difference between an individual who asks to be called a certain thing and telling me that I need to see reality differently. That's a very different thing. Um, And yeah, I I feel like it's very disrespectful to women 
too think for a man to say, I can just go in there and snip, snip, chop, chop, tuck, tuck, and now I'm a woman. There's a whole lot more to being a woman than that. Um, and the reverse, of course. There's a whole lot more to being a man than just getting some fucking dick sewed onto your body. Um, you know, guys will laugh just like everybody else about a dick with the ears, a guy walking around, he's a dick with legs. But the fact is, there's a lot more to a human being than their fucking genitalia. And it's just part of the ongoing extension of the sickness of our culture that we get caught up in that as far as I'm concerned. So that's what I say to Keith's message. And he's he's welcome to have his opinion. Um, I did not change Tranny Granny to uh, be on whatever. I don't even know what, what it got taken off of, actually. I don't even know what I got removed from. But yeah. We need to have that that exchange of ideas of all the things. You know, when I was a kid, I was so into, like, rebellion. You know, God, there's so much to rebel against. We need to rise up. We need to resist. I can't believe that here I am, 40, I think I'm 45, 45 years old, and the type of shit that's getting rebelled against is our own fucking genitalia? What? Good God. Um... <laughs> Yeah, there's just so much. It's the ego of self, the, the the fucking temple of ego. And it has gotten, it was already bad. I mean, all the way back 2,500 years ago, Buddha was like teaching against the temple of ego. And it has just become, I can't even think of a word for it, explosive. We, we are drowning in it. So I make room for everybody's choices. I make room for everybody's opinions. I will argue with you. I will try not to call you a stupid ass or anything insulting. Um, there was a time when I would I would call people like, are you fucking stupid? And I just realized somewhere along the way that that doesn't serve anybody. Um, they're probably not stupid. They're probably seeing things in a way I don't. And, you know, so many views I've had, I've realized like a few years down the road, like, oh, that was kind of stupid. We need to make allowance for that, for these talks. That's how people grow. They can disagree. Um, but the censorship, you know, that Keith is here exemplifying in Scotland. That was another thing. You know, I've got this like, uh, what am I trying to say? This this uh, stereotype of the, the rugged Scottishman, Scotsman. And, uh, you know, it was a funny stance for him to take to me. It kind of took me by surprise, but. Yeah, if you got a dick and balls, you're a man, in my view. You don't have to agree with me. Um, if you ever see me face to face, tell me why I'm wrong. I'd be happy to have that discussion. I'm not going to try to shame you or say you're a fucking idiot. I'm going to say, you haven't convinced me. I don't see it that way. Or maybe, unbeknownst to me, you will convince me. Um, but that door is open, and I will not censor you. Um, and I guess that's all I have. There's probably plenty. Um, thank you for listening to me all by myself. <clears throat> all by myself. <sighs> and hopefully uh, Teresa will be back soon. And I told her, I sent her a message saying, you know, this contemplative monastic life I'm leading, I'm either going to be uh, enlightened by the time she gets back or I want to be stark raving fucking mad. Or uh, maybe both. Maybe both. If you have any questions or comments, please uh, contact us at our website, w, at our website, www.escapingsociety.weebly, B as in, uh, shit, 
Boy.com. Um, or, no, 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 not or. We also have a Facebook page, so you can check us out at our Facebook page. Like I said, I'm making, I'm cranking out some white hot memes. Um, you will find memes there that you will not find anywhere else, so check that out. And we got a YouTube channel. Try to put uh, useful videos up there. You know, we get this is all about opinions and stuff here. You know, on the podcast, the videos are not opinionated pieces. They're just how-to pieces. So check that out. Even if you don't like a damn thing we say on the podcast, you might like the YouTube videos. And we have a donate button. Always looking for financial contributions. They're very helpful. Um, Work is hard to come by, I guess, for a lot of people now. And if not, uh, like I said, shoot us a message. Oh, and reviews. It would really be helpful if... uh, you reviewed us, you know, from what I hear, I didn't know these were so important, but if you put a little five-star review and, you know, a little comment or whatever, it helps more people listen to our podcast. So that would be pretty awesome. Um, if not, if you're not moved to, if it feels like, you know, oh, I didn't like that, well, I don't know why you're still listening if you didn't like it, but, uh, you know, fair enough. And send us a message. I always like criticism. Um, most of it I will take well, like Monique's. Uh, some of it um, kind of pisses me off a little bit more, like Keith's. But, uh, yeah, it'll be received, it'll be contemplated, and it'll uh, be uh, added to the mix. So, ah, we'll talk to you later. Bye. Oh, society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger. So, thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it, cause we'll be gone. Over that next horizon. We ain't got no Thank you.